0: The story of Job, my friends, is well known to all of us. I suspect what is not so well known to us is some of the language that Job uses in this book. Few books and chapters in Scripture contain the kind of gut-wrenching language that we find in the book of Job. And no doubt... There are times when Job crosses the line, when he says things about God that are not reverent, not respectful, and not correct. And yet God in his mercy, my friends, in his compassion, in his tender compassion for his hurting and suffering children has left on record for us these, what do you call these words? These words that come from the heart of a man who is suffering intensely. What was Job suffering for? Now the children amongst us can already answer that question. We know what Job's problem was. That is my first point. Job's problem. Remember what happened in the first chapter of Job, right? All of Job's animals, his livestock, were taken away. The four corners of his house collapsed on all his children and finally Job's health itself was taken away and not uh, by just any old disease but by a disease of painful boils which covered his skin and drove him wild with 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 the festering itch. My friends, Job got relief physically from the itching, festering skin by taking broken pieces of pottery and scraping them over his skin. Now, when you get relief from something like that, that tells you the depth of the physical suffering that this man was experiencing as he sat there in his ash heap. This was Job's problem. In the first place, that was Job's problem. But my friends, there's, there's a two and a three here as you can see on the outline. There's another problem. There's another issue that Job has, that has that's not tied to his physical sufferings. This is a, a problem that Job has in his relationship to God himself. And I think that this really is the depth of his suffering, my friends. Because Job, ha- and this is number two, this is Job's second problem. Job has a sense, a burning sense of his own innocence. That the suffering which he is receiving from God is undeserved. And Job has this burning sense to make his case to God. He wants to come to God and he wants to defend himself. And my friends, again, I I, I tell you reverently that Job is not very reverent. Often in his speech, and that's something I want to review with you this evening. I want to look at some of these things that Job says. But now there's a third thing. So the second thing, Job has this sense of his own innocence. He has this burning sense of indignation at the injustice done to him, and that is directed at God Himself. There's a there's a, a there's a rawness, a, a naked rawness. to the the indignation that Job has in this book, my friends. But there's a third thing. And that is Job's sense that it is hopeless for him to even bring his case to God. First of all, Job can't reach God. And you'll see this. Again, I'll read some scriptures with you. He has this sense that he can't get to where God is. He can't get into God's courtroom so that he could even make his case. Then he thinks, you know, even if I could get into God's courtroom, God could just crush me. How can I come into the presence of the Almighty God and make my case? Job still has a sense of his own smallness and of God's greatness. Joe has a sense, furthermore, that God is invisible. I, I can't find him anywhere. Let's read some of these things. But this is Job's problem. I want to lay that out in the first place. Obviously, all the suffering that Job had from his loss and from his, his health. But second, his sense of an injustice, his own innocence was done to him. And and in the third place, his hopelessness of even bringing his case to God and making his case to God. I want to turn to Job 9. There's so many different places where this point is made. But Job 9 is an especially clear chapter where Job speaks and where you can hear Something of these three things that I said are Job's problem. Job's problem. So Job 9. I'll read most of this chapter with you, but let's look first at verses 1 through 6. Then Job answered, in truth, I know that this is so. But how can a man be right, be in the right before God? And now listen. Verse 3. If one wished to dispute with him, he could not answer him once in a thousand times. How could you dispute with the almighty God, Job is saying? Verse 4, wise in heart and mighty in strength, who has defied him without harm? It is God who removes the mountains. They know not how. When he overturns them in his anger, he who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble. And Job continues on this line, talking about the greatness and the majesty of God as the great creator. Everything he does is... Is, is so powerful and so far beyond us. Drop down to verse 11, Job 9, and verse 11. Were he to pass by me, I would not see him. Were he to move past me, I would not perceive him. Job says that even if I could get to him, he can just pass by me, and he's invisible. I cannot see him. Look at verse 15. Job speaks in verse 15. For though I were right, I could not answer. I would have to employ the mercy of my judge. Here's Job again on the, on the same line as what he was before that. Who can ever possibly imagine standing before God and trying to argue your case that you're right? All you can do is beg for mercy from the judge, the sovereign creator of the universe. Verse 16, and again, congregation, you read this almost with a, with a sense of fear, don't we? Did Job really say this? Verse 16, if I called and he answered me, I could not believe that he was listening to my voice. There's Job saying that even if I could get to God, even if I could come into his presence, even if I could see him, I don't think he would listen to me. The next verse. For he bruises me, this is verse 17, for he bruises me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. Again, Job feels that God is doing a terrible injustice to him. Verse 19, if it is a matter of power, behold, he is the strong one. And if it is a matter of justice, who can summon him? Verse 20, Though I am righteous. Again, similar to what we read in the seventh psalm. Job, like the psalmist there, says, I am righteous. In this matter, I am innocent. Again, Job's not saying that he has no sin. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about all this suffering. I've not done anything that would have deserved this kind of punishment from God. Though I am righteous, my mouth will condemn me. Though I am guiltless, he will declare me guilty. My friends, that's astonishing. Don't read over that. Listen to what Job says. Though I am guiltless, he will declare me guilty. I I hesitate to say it. But Job is saying, God, you're not fair. You are not just. Though I am guiltless, he will declare me guilty. The same thing is in verse 22. Again, Job 9, verse 22. It is all one, therefore I say, He destroys the guiltless and the wicked. God has no sense of justice. And whether you're perfectly innocent or whether you're guilty, God destroys them both. That's hard language, isn't it? Again, you see what I was saying before, that Job has such a sense of his own innocence in this affair, that he has a case to make to God. And Job is being treated unjustly, And that's what that's his his own understanding, and you sense too, right? There's this hopelessness. Job feels like I want to make this case to God, but I can't find him. I can't come into his presence. Where is he? Where is his courtroom? I'll go there. I'll travel all across the world if I have to. I'll cross the highest mountain. I'll go through the deepest sea. But I am going to come to God's courtroom and argue my case. But I can't find his courtroom. Turn to me just a few chapters over to Job 13. Job 13 and verse 3. Job 13 and verse 3. But I would speak to the Almighty, and I desire to argue with God. Again, the same idea that Job wants to make his case to God. He wants to argue with God, but he cannot come into his presence. He cannot find God's courtroom, as it were. And verse 15 in that same chapter, Job 13 and verse 15, you see this this almost desperate sense of Job, of Job's belief in his own innocence. Job 13 and verse 15, Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Nevertheless, I will argue my ways before him. Even if God strikes me down and kills me, completely wipes me out, I will continue to argue my innocence before him. I will argue my ways before him. My friends, again, do you, do you sense something of the of the of the awful raw torture and anguish that this man has in his soul? And it's not just because his skin is so itchy, because he lost all his children, he lost all his livestock. What's really burning in the soul of Job is this sense of indignation that God is not treating him justly and he wants to come into God's courtroom and make his case. The last chapter I'll look with is Job 23, before I come back to our own text in Job 16. But in Job 23, Job 23, verse 1. Job 23, in verse 1, Then Job replied, Even today my complaint is rebellion. My hand is heavy despite my groaning. Oh, That I knew where I might find him. That I might come to his seat, that his judgment seat. I would present my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would learn the words which he would answer and perceive what he would say to me. Would he contend with me by the greatness of his power? No, surely he would pay attention to me. There the upright would reason with him and I would be delivered forever from my judge behold i go forward but he's not there and backward but i cannot perceive him when he acts on the left i cannot behold him he turns on the right i cannot see him here's job searching for god he says i go forward he's not there i go to the left i go to the right where is he i cannot find him i want to come to his seat I want to present my case before him, he says in verse 4. My friends, this is Job's problem. This is how I want to begin the sermon this evening. I want you to sense something of the raw anguish that this man has in his soul. Not because his body is suffering so terribly, but because in his own mind, he cannot reconcile his own experience with the justice of God. You might say, my friends, that this is a worldview shaking question for Job. His whole worldview, the whole way he understands and views the world, is is it's like an earthquake is shaking him. It just doesn't fit. And you and you sense the desperation that fills this man's soul as he as he longs for this opportunity to come into the presence of God and to say, again, I say it reverently God, what are you doing? You're not treating me justly. And Job can't get into heaven. He can't get into God's courtroom. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, is his anguished cry. My friends, I turn in the second place to Job's need. Now this is closely related to Job's problem. But what is Job's need? Well, in Job 9, Verse 33, let me just read this to you. Job says, There is no umpire between us who may lay his hand upon us both. You understand now that Job is, is, is giving vent to this cry that even though he can't find God's courtroom, he can't come into God's presence, oh, that there were somebody who would argue my case for me. That's what we call lawyers today, right? And Job is saying, oh, that I had an advocate. Oh, that I had a lawyer. Somebody who could argue my case because I can't get to heaven. I can't get into the heavenly courtroom. But if there was somebody there who could do it for me in my place. Now, that's especially, my friends, what we see in our text. In Job 16. So turn, please, with me to Job 16. And I want to begin at verse 18. Job 16 and verse 18. Where Job says, O earth, do not cover my blood. And let there be no resting place for my cry. Remember, my friends, that uh, one of the uses of the word blood in the Bible is that blood cries out. It speaks. In fact, the, 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 the verse that you'll no doubt remember is that in Genesis 4, right? The blood of Abel, says God, is crying out to me. And in the same way now, Job says, O earth, it's almost as if Job can no longer appeal to God because God won't listen to him. God has turned his back upon him. And Job says, O earth, do not cover my blood. In other words, when I die, and when I die unjustly under the judgments of God, O earth, do not cover my blood, which was wrongfully spilt. Verse 19. Even now, behold, my witness is in heaven and my advocate is on high. Now, this is a difficult verse. Uh, Different people have understood this differently. Some people have said that at this point, Job is appealing to God as his witness in heaven. I have a hard time believing that, that interpretation. Many people have taken that interpretation. I have a hard time believing it, though, because at this point, God is Job's problem, you might say. God isn't Job's witness and his advocate. Job needs someone to witness To God for him. Right? God is the one that that you might say is is afflicting Job and Job feels so unjustly. And so the witness I don't believe is God here. Who is the witness? Well on one on one sense we can say Job doesn't know. Job doesn't know. He's so desperate my friends as I said before that he's calling out, he's longing that somebody would go to the heavenly courtroom and speak for him. And be his lawyer, as it were, to speak in his interest in the court of heaven. Now, another way to understand this, and this isn't necessarily contradictory with what I just said, but another way to understand it is that the witness here and the advocate is not a person. But that Job, you might say, is regist- registering his complaint that Job, you might say, is writing out his grievance and he's filing it in the court of heaven. Why? Because God won't listen to him. Because God has turned his back on him, or so Job thinks. And because Job has this sense that God is unjustly afflicting him, and since Job is in such a desperate condition and so desperate to prove his own innocence, that all he can do, you might say, is he writes out his grievance on a paper and he files it in the court of heaven. He has nothing else that he can do. Again, the sense of desperation. Behold, my witness, that is my my written complaint, you might say, is in heaven. I've filed it in the heavenly court. And my advocate, by the way, the word advocate there is is the same word as witness. The the NASB clearly is understanding it as a a personal thing. Uh, I'm taking it more as Job's complaint is, is written there in heaven which that word certainly can be. But 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 I don't want to completely uh, lose this idea either, my friends, that Job just doesn't know. He wishes that there were somebody in the heavenly courtroom who would say to him, Job, I'll take your case. I'll speak to God about it for you. But of course, Job has no idea. He has no clue. His His mind is in so much anguish, he just calls out. By the way, verse 20 kind of carries on this This idea, he says, my friends and uh, my friends are my scoffers. These people on earth that are sitting around me, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, they're mocking with me. That's a bit of an exaggeration, right? Uh, the, The men that were sitting around him weren't really mocking with him so much, they were rebuking him. But again, Job is in deep anguish here. My eye weeps to God. Verse 21, and this is our text, my friends. Oh, says Job, oh, that a man might plead with God as a man with his neighbor. And the thought here, my friends, is that if I had an issue with with any of you, I would take my case to you. Maybe I would have to take you to court. But either way, whether directly or even if I took you to court, I could do that. I could take you to the Kalamazoo Courthouse. And we would sit down, and I would present my case, and you would present your case. Men speak, right? When, when men have a conflict with each other, they make their case to the judge, and the judge decides. And Job says, oh, that I could plead with God. Oh, that I could make my case to God the way I would if I had a, 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 a lawsuit or a case against my neighbor, On earth, that's how it happens. We go to the courtroom. We make our case. The judge decides. But Job says, Oh, that it were that way in heaven. Oh, that I could go to the heavenly courtroom. Oh, that I could stand before God and make my case to God the way I would in an earthly courtroom. There's the plea of this man, Job. And that's why I say, my friends, the suffering of Job is not so much his loss of his his livelihood, the loss of his health, but this burning sense that an injustice was done to him. And he, he desperately wants to go into God's courtroom. That's what I think you see in verse 21. Oh, that a man might plead with God as a man with his neighbor. For when a few years are past, I shall go the way of no return. Again, Job doesn't have a New Testament understanding of, of heaven and hell yet, right? And he, even though he, he had some, some faint idea of it, right? That was not so clearly revealed. And at this point, he says, for when a few years are past, then it's too late. Then I can no longer make my case to God. And I shall go the way of no return. Well, my friends, you see the desperation, the anguish of this man as he he tries to reconcile in his own mind what's happening to him with the justice and the goodness of God. And and he can't bring those two things together. And that cry of Job 16, verse 21, Oh, that a man might plead with God as a man with his neighbor. And I want to bring that now, my friends, to our catechism. If you'll turn the outline over, you can see the catechism printed there on the front where we read, how does Christ's ascension to heaven benefit us? And what's the very first one given us there, my friends? He is our advocate in heaven. in my first point of application, I want to bring you into that heavenly courtroom. That courtroom where Job could not come and where he so earnestly desired to come. How to get there? Who will argue my case, says Job. But my friends this evening, I ask you, who will argue your case in the heavenly courtroom? Who will represent our interest in heaven? You know, governments send ambassadors, right, to all these different nations to act as advocates for our nation in other countries. But who will be your advocate, my friends? Who will represent you in the heavenly courtroom? And there's one massive difference between us and Job. Job protested his own innocence, didn't he? But my friends, we have no such case to make before God this evening. We have no such case to make because our guilt is obvious and clear to the judge of all the earth. You know, if Job was, if Job had a sense of frustration for not being able to reach the heavenly courtroom, how much more are we, my friends, who have so much sin and guilt that God could condemn us without any, again, Job complained of the injustice done to him. But we could never do such a thing. God would do us no injustice if he cast us from his presence forever and forever. Who will be our advocate in heaven? And the catechism comes and says, Christ ascended into heaven. And he acts there as our advocate. I almost can see in my mind's eye, my friends, the heavenly courtroom. I see God, the judge of all the earth, seated on the the seat. Job said, oh, that I might come to his seat, right? Oh, that I might come to his judgment seat. And there's the heavenly judge, sitting infinitely holy, perfectly just, sitting on his courtroom, sitting in his courtroom, sitting on his seat of judgment. And in comes the sinner. In comes you, my friend. In comes me. We come into the God's courtroom, The case is open and shut. There's nothing to argue. Do you remember those dreadful words in Romans chapter 3? In Romans chapter 3 and verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may be accountable to God. In God's courtroom, Job had a case to make. But in when we enter God's courtroom, my friends, our mouths are closed. We have nothing to say in our defense. But my friends, as we sit there, as we sit in the dock, and as we see the judge infinitely holy and perfectly just, as he lifts that gavel to give his decision, another enters. Another man enters, my friends, a crucified king. A man with holes in his hands and holes in his feet. A man comes in that courtroom, Jesus Christ, the suffering one. And he says, I step in the place of this one. I know this man. I know this woman. And I'm going to speak on his behalf. Because Christ is the just one. In this case, Job is a little type of Christ. Because Christ, in a way that Job never could, Christ steps before the judge of heaven and earth and says, I cover the sins of this man and of this woman. This is our advocate in heaven. And this is why we rejoice in the ascension of Jesus Christ. He comes into our place. Let me read to you some scriptures on this regard, my friends. In 1 John chapter 2, we have such a beautiful statement of this glorious truth. My little children, says John, in 1 John 2, verse 1, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. There you have it all. You have the whole truth stated. Here we have an advocate, one who speaks on our behalf. He's with the Father. He's in the heavenly courtroom. He's in the place where he needs to be. He's Jesus Christ, the righteous. He has no sin of his own. He pleads for his sinful people. And on their behalf, what does he plead? He says, Father, I am the propitiation for these people. Now, propitiation. That means God's wrath is taken away. That the suffering of Christ, his death on the cross, my friends, takes away the wrath of God on behalf of these people. We have no case to make in heaven. But Jesus Christ is our advocate and he has his bleeding hands, his bleeding side to plead as an atonement for our sins. Now, my friends, at this point, I want to bring in an objection because everything I've said so far can lead to a misunderstanding of what Christ does as our ascended king. It it, it can be in our minds that Jesus has to persuade the Father, right? That the Father is determined to crush us. But Jesus Christ comes in there as our advocate, as our lawyer, and he persuades God. Now, that's a bad way to think about it, isn't it? Again, you can think about that wonderful text. For God so loved the world that he sent his Son. The very fact that we have an advocate in heaven is the love of God. God is the one who provided this advocate. And the reason we need that advocate is not because God is not willing to save, but because God's justice must be satisfied. God's justice must be satisfied. Punishment must be administered in order for his justice to be satisfied. And therefore, the advocate comes not to to persuade, not to bring God to that point where he'll love us and he'll save us, no, but to present his blood as the propitiation for our sins. To present his blood, you might say, as the argument, as the argument why God's justice should be satisfied and his anger taken away and God's people can be redeemed and delivered. This is what takes place in God's courtroom. And my friends, when Jesus Christ enters that courtroom, he comes into heaven where we cannot come, where Job could not come because of his ascension into heaven. And so I hope you can see tonight the connection that Christ did all what he did for us on this earth. But now when we celebrate this evening his ascension into heaven, we see him and the catechism teaches us to think this way, that he is now our advocate. He speaks on our behalf and he brings his own blood and his own suffering as the propitiation for our sins. What a scene that must be in the courtroom, my friends. I wonder what Job must have thought when he came to that realization that as he cried out in Job 16, right, oh, that a man might speak to God as a man speaks with his friends. Oh, that a man could argue his case in that way. And he discovered that there was already in heaven someone arguing Job's case to God the Father. That must have been a wonder for that man to come to that realization. My second point of application is success. Will there be success? Will Christ succeed in his ministry, in his advocacy on our behalf? Well, in Romans 8, the Apostle Paul gives us such a clear statement of that in Romans 8 and verse 33. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? In other words, again, we're in God's courtroom. Who will bring a charge against them? Says Paul. God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. So you see that same truth, my friends. But now the question is, will Christ succeed? And Paul asks, and this is a rhetorical question, isn't it? The question is not a question, it's a statement. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Well, the clear answer is, no one will bring a charge against God's elect. In other words, Christ's intercession, his advocacy on our behalf, will succeed. It will never fail. God's justice will be satisfied with the blood of Christ. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? No one can. Because Christ Jesus died, yea rather was raised, and is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Christ will be successful. And what about the fee? This is kind of a strange thing to bring up. What about Christ's legal fees? Lawyers are very expensive in our day. This is something, my friends, that caught my eye when I was reading a book by John Bunyan. And I thought it was so interesting that I would bring it to you. Who will pay the fee for Christ to be our advocate in heaven? And Bunyan had such a quaint statement to say on this that I can't help but bring it. He said that in the courts of England, we have the same thing in our own courts here, there are those who can bring a suit In forma pauperis, that's a Latin expression, in the form or in the way of a pauper. In other words, they cannot afford a lawyer. They cannot afford to have their own advocate. They cannot pay him, but they come as a pauper. How many paupers are there here this evening, my friends? How many poor paupers who have no price, who have no ability to pay for the fee for our advocate in heaven? but who come into God's courtroom in forma pauperis. I think that's a lovely idea, my friends, that we come. And this lawyer, this advocate, does not demand a fee, but he treats us as paupers. In Psalm 72, verse 12, For he shall deliver the needy when he crieth, the poor also, and him that hath no helper. Even the poor Christ will plead for, even him that hath no helper. And Psalm 109, for he shall stand at the right hand of the poor to save him from those that condemn his soul. My friends, are you such a poor one this evening that you have no price, no money to pay the fee of this advocate? Well, he requires no fee. The glad news of the ascension is that he ascends into heaven for all his people, and he stands there to plead their case in forma pauperis, in the way of a pauper. Now, that's good news for you, my friends, and that's good news for me because we are paupers with no money to pay. May God bless these words to our hearts. Lord, we draw near to you at the close of this service. Lord, just poor paupers, just poor sinners saved by grace. We have no money in our hand. No, we can't pay the fee. And Lord, how glad we are that there is no fee. That you come and plead for us without money and without price, without charging us anything for it. Lord, how that humbles us and how that glorifies you and the salvation that you bring to your children. And so, Lord, as our great advocate in heaven, we thank you and we know that our salvation is all in your hands. Lord, we also think of the glorious truth that from before all eternity you loved your people and sent your son to die for them and to be their advocate in heaven. And old Job, with all his anguish of heart and mind, knows the truth now, that there was one in heaven who pled his cause and who never fails. Who shall bring anything, any charge against God's elect? No one can. And Lord, we worship you for it. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's turn in the red hymnal to number 225. 225, will sing the five verses, Lord, my weak thought in vain would climb to search the starry vault profound. In vain would wing her flight sublime to find creation's utmost bound. And what follows then in verses 1 through 5 of 225 in the red hymnal. of the Lord and go in peace. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.